Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is my good friend, Brent Maximin, to talk about Manchester United's woes. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories and on-site coverage of the men's and women's game. That's grantwall.com. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Brent Maximin in segment two, but let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? I'm doing all right, sir. How are you? I have to be honest, I'm a little bummed that I missed the Manchester United chat, although I then realized after I had that thought that I'd probably just be repeating myself of many times we've talked about Manchester United and what a disaster they are, but to get hammered like that by Brighton, I mean, that is a nadir for a once-proud club. 4-0... I talk about it at length uh, with Brett Maximin, who has lots of thoughts to share from a hardcore Man United fan's perspective, who watches every minute of every game, even this torrid, awful season. Um, So stick around if you're a listener uh, for that. But yeah, 4-0, just absolutely wild. Big weekend in the Premier League. You know, we're running out of match days in England, but changes at the top, changes at the bottom, which we will talk about in a second. But first, I want to ask, how was your Formula One experience today in Miami on Sunday? It was it was kind of remarkable because uh, I am I am one of the the bandwagoners that jumped on this Formula One thing because of the Netflix show. It was one of those where it's it's a word of mouth where everyone's talking about this show and it's in group chats and stuff. So I was like, let me fire it up. And I was really interested by it. And when I kind of get into a sport, I like can't help but like really digging in deep. So I kind I know all the teams. I know all the drivers. I know most of the team principals. And it was kind of cool to have like the reward of this kind of like new pursuit in sport to kind of be rewarded by actually getting to see and kind of have like a personal touch with it. So it was it was cool to be at the Grand Prix. It was an unbelievable scene uh, in terms of like what it was like on the paddock with, I mean, every celebrity in the book just milling about. It was incredible. Um, and, and getting to see these incredible machines in person, it's staggering to hear the sound, never mind actually see some of the racing taking place. So I, I absolutely loved every second. I will say it was an unbelievably hot weekend in Miami. <laughs> and so I am dead beat tired uh, at, at, at the end of all this. So uh, I, I hope I can still give a good podcast performance. And we should also say, last podcast was we recorded on Thursday morning at like 7 a.m. Eastern, 4 a.m. where I was in <laughs> Seattle. <laughs> and that day, you were going to jump out of a plane I've seen video of this, which was incredible. How did it go? It was great. Uh, I, I, it's funny because every person who recognized me there, at, at, like amongst the media corps, was like, so, jumping out of an airplane. So it's been really interesting to kind of relive it in that many times. And the thing that most kind of sticks out is, so I was first off the plane. So it was kind of, there was four tandems that were, that were meant to jump off of the plane. And I was the first one up. And being that, obviously, the guy with the parachute has to be on the back, I kind of, in that instance, lead. So they're inching me to the edge of an airplane that is 13,000 feet in the air. And so people kind of recognize some fear of me, although it wasn't really fear as such, although there was, like, some element of, like, you know, caution, I would say, where 
I need to be like 100% sure that this guy on my back who's got the parachute is ready to go. So people kind of see me afraid of the ledge, but it really was so that the guy can basically determine, all right, it's time to go. And so, you know, I, I, I didn't want to jump. I didn't feel like it was my responsibility to jump. So the guy pushes me and we were away. And it's <laughs> unlike anything you will ever experience in your life. Just the sound, the kind of, the pressure that you meet. And the one thing that I think I've found most difficult to explain to people in the aftermath of it is how physically taxing it is. And hmm. you would think that like, oh, you know, it's a physical activity, but I felt like I was in like a heavyweight boxing fight at the end of it. I had like, I had the hell beaten out of me by just like the G-forces and the pressure and the resistance. When I landed, I went to a gas station. I sat in my car for like 20 minutes, like mustering up the energy to go again because I felt like physically beat. So wow. it, was, it, was, it was a taxing experience, but I mean, it's unlike anything you'll ever experience. You're just, you're seeing... You know, this city that you drive around in, there's the beach over there. Like, you kind of have a look around, you go, my word, this is where I live, and I'm seeing it from above it, not like out of the window of an airplane, but with my own two eyes. So it was kind of a, it was a serene experience in that way. And I, I honestly, I, I would recommend it to people, but I also understand why there would be an obvious fear of it, because it's very high, and you're jumping out of an airplane. Yeah, I mean... Four tandems. When you first mentioned that, I thought you were going to say that like there were four tandems and only like two or three came out of the plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did everyone get out? Yes, everyone got out. So okay. it was uh, it was all good. But like I was I was first out the door. So it was kind of yeah. like we'll meet you on the ground. It was funny because one of the one of the guys that went after me landed before me. I guess he had a a harder yeah. a harder landing. I guess like because you, you're trying to like kind of balance your way into like this field. And I didn't realize it was basically. I two-footed the ground is, is, is essentially what happened. Like, I did a two-footed uh, challenge to kind of steady myself, and you basically slide on the ground, and that's how, that's how you land. Awesome. Well, uh, sounds like an amazing life experience. I'm glad you did it. I'm glad you are with us now. Um, I'm glad there are more Football with Grant Wall podcasts after the one we recorded on Thursday morning. <laughs> I, while, while I was in the air, I was thinking, I really hope I get to record another podcast. <laughs> and thankfully, I do get to. And here we are. So let's talk about the Premier League. Liverpool won, Spurs won is the result of the weekend. And in Thursday's podcast, Chris, I recall you, yep. Mr. City fan, <laughs> saying that now after the collapse against Real Madrid in Champions League, that Man City would not win the Premier League because they would, what, crumble mentally or something yeah. from the result in Madrid. And no sooner did you say that than City beats Newcastle 5-0 and Liverpool drops points to Spurs and we're actually down in this game before they equalized. And suddenly it's a three-point lead for City with just three match days left. And not only that, but City, by virtue of winning by five goals to nil, now have a four-goal superior goal difference. Now, I imagine that race will change over these last few weeks as I imagine both teams recognize its importance. But yeah, I was really stunned by the results of the weekend. And I was also kind of taking into account that Liverpool, almost regardless of result, anytime they kind of came up against a big six opponent basically took care of them, save for when they played Manchester City and played do 2-2 draw. Liverpool, outside of that, have won 13 matches in a row, 
They're in such a strong way. They had such a strong performance in the Champions League against Villarreal. They gave them two goals. They're level in the tie. It's kind of nervous. And then, bang, secure three-goal performance in the second half. They cruise through to the final. They've won the Carabao Cup already. They beat Manchester City in the FA Cup semifinal. They'll play Chelsea in the FA Cup final. They're in such a good moment that I just had ultimate trust that they'd get this done. And so I was really surprised at the results of the weekend. I was calling the Inter-Miami game. Uh, and I was surprised. It was 1-0 to Spurs, and then it was 1-1 at full time. And now, it, again, it's kind of the pendulum swinging to Manchester City. And i kind of seen a framing of it that, well, this is kind of a surprise because, you know, Man, you know, Man City... And look, I, I said it myself. I thought they were going to crumble. But in the Premier League, Manchester City have been incredibly dominant. It's only appeared as though this race could be viewed as a collapse or as a falling off because at one point they led by 10 points. You have to remember Man City or Liverpool had games in hand at that point. And since then, Man City have only dropped three results and one of them was to Liverpool, a point that they shared. So they have not been really that bad in the Premier League. It's just that it can all be seen to be crumbling down. I was surprised at both results that Liverpool didn't get the job done, and that Man City were so comfortable at home against Newcastle. And now this is the only focus they have for the final three games, and you'd have to imagine they'll get over the line now. Got to give credit to Antonio Conte and Spurs for what they did, how they played at Anfield. I thought uh, they deserved the goal that they got. Uh, And uh, Son, very good, very dangerous. Even Harry Kane, uh, solid uh, Sessegnon was was good. So, I mean, like, what Conti has done with that team is impressive. And we'll see if they end up finishing top four. They, they're at least in the, the discussion there. And, you know, like, there's some interesting games coming, including the Arsenal game. And Arsenal's playing well. Uh, we'll get to their game against Leeds here a little bit later. But I look at what's happening... I just am surprised. I, I I still thought, you know, in once Liverpool got the equalizer, I was like, okay, Liverpool's going to win the game, you know, because they had f- pushed forward. They had like four forwards on, and it just felt like it was going to happen, and then it didn't happen. And so, who knows? I mean, small margins for error, but when you drop two points at home uh, in a situation where you need every single point, that's uh, that's a crusher potentially for Liverpool. And I did not expect to see that. Like you said, didn't expect to see City play as well as they did, even at home against Newcastle. But um, I do want to mention the other end of the table and Leeds and Jesse Marsh are now in the relegation zone after a 2-1 loss to Arsenal that just began horribly, gave up two goals right near the beginning of the game. First half red card to Luke Ayling. And then actually got to go back with 10 men in the second half, but still a loss is a loss. Meanwhile, Burnley loses, but they're still at 34 points with a better goal difference than Leeds, which has a terrible goal difference because they just got waxed so many times this season. And Everton wins at Leicester. And now Everton is out of the relegation zone. And Jesse Marsh is under a fair bit of pressure now yeah I mean it's in some ways if you look at all the fixtures that Jesse Marsh has had you can't really fault him for any of the results 
I mean, the last two losses have been to Arsenal and Manchester City, and it was a disastrous start, but Leeds still found a way back into the game. They gave away two goals, had a player red card in the first half hour, but Leeds didn't get a goal and at least make it an interesting final half hour. Losing at home to Manchester City is not a bad result. I thought they probably needed to get something out of these three games, which are... Manchester City, Arsenal, and Chelsea. I looked at the Arsenal game as something as as a place where maybe Leeds can get something from, but I think at this point, Leeds basically has to beat Brighton and get something away at Brentford, maybe even a win to stave off relegation. That's a really difficult ask at this point. Burnley are away at Tottenham. They're away at Aston Villa and home with Newcastle on the final day. Newcastle with nothing to play for. So... It's really interesting that one Everton has found this kind of backbone late in the season when every I, I thought they were done for at certain points in the season, but they found their way back in it. They still have an extra game left to play, um, but Leeds are in trouble. And I think in the situation that that Jesse Marsh inherited, he needed to pull off one extraordinary result. That hasn't really happened yet. Everything has kind of gone to how you would kind of expect Leeds to get results. And I think he needs to pull off one massive result over the course of these last three games if they're going to stay up. Although, in some ways, the die was cast when he inherited the job. Leeds had more games played than everyone else. um, And you were kind of hoping that Everton and Burnley were going to stay as bad as they have been at various points. Both of them have found good patches of form to be able to get back into position to climb up the table. So, uh, yeah, Leeds are bang in trouble right now. Though, As you mentioned, because of the goal difference, that was inherited. Because of the position they were in in the league table, that was inherited. You need a, a guy like Jesse Marsh to lift them out. And, you know, so far, he hasn't gotten that one massive result to really turn the tide. No, you're definitely right on all of that. And Arsenal now is just one point behind Chelsea for third place in the league. Chelsea is just struggling up 2-0 on Wolves at home with new soon-to-be owner Todd Bowley, the American in the stands. And it ends up 2-2. And more drop points for Chelsea when they shouldn't have. And now they may get passed by Arsenal, which would be something we didn't even conceive of as being a possibility. And it's not outside the realm. It'd be stunning still if Chelsea ends up not in the top four. Yeah, I mean, it's been fairly flabbergasting the way that it's gone. I think the possibility of them dropping out of the top four is probably unlikely given that Arsenal and Spurs still have to play each other with three games left and, and you have two combatants underneath you and they still have to play each other. Those are, for the most part, uh, going to be someone dropping points. They're not getting close to you. So as long as Chelsea can get one or two wins in the run into the season, they still have to play Watford at home. They still get to play Leicester at home. So that's they should have enough to get over the line. But I think it's just been kind of a season from hell for them. When you look at, obviously, the ownership situation, what a disaster that has been off the field, some of the major injuries that they've had, it's funny because in this game, they were at least able to get Lukaku going when that's been such a struggle for them. I thought he took his second goal incredibly well. So you at least have that in your favor. But, you know, with all the chopping and changing, I think Thomas Tuchel, while at sometimes he's done a very admirable job given the circumstances, I also think on the flip side, they just don't have enough goal scoring. And this year, the, the goal concession has gone up uh, to a point where they haven't been able to make up for it. I mean, 70 goals is still a decent output, but when you consider the hundreds of millions of pounds that they've put into that attack, 
it should be better. And it should come from those attacking players more than it has. So when that defense took a step back as it probably was going to, you needed a subsequent, you know, return to form for some of their attackers just hasn't come. So Chelsea have just been dropping weird results lately. And I think in some ways they've kind of been comfortable with their position. And now that they have a bit of pressure, I think they'll probably dial it back up. And I would imagine they'll take care of their home Premier League games that they have left. And we'll see what they do in the FA Cup. Yeah, and your predictions have been really not great lately. So we'll see if that actually happens. (laughs) (laughs) I will say... I did pick Chelsea to finish in third because I didn't believe in their attack. So I feel slightly vindicated on that one. (laughs) So Christian Pulisic did start this game. First one he started in quite a while. Did get an assist on one of the goals. And that's a way of segging maybe into the U.S. men's national team discussion of the weekend, which comes from Miles Robinson. Going to get an MRI on Monday, but real, real concerns that he might have done his Achilles with Atlanta over the weekend. And We'll see, you know, what ends up happening here. But uh, already this year, Brad Guzan did his Achilles uh, for uh, Atlanta. And, you know, here we are again. I, 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 I don't, you know what I'm saying? Like, the, I don't like the turf situation down there. Yeah. I'm not an expert. I don't know if it's causing this stuff. It's not great, though, uh, that Atlanta is losing multiple players to potential Achilles situations. And obviously, for Miles Robinson, if it is a serious injury, that's just a crusher for the U.S. men's national team, uh, for him, uh, and just sending out positive thoughts to him right now ahead of uh, this MRI on Monday. But um, just really bad news. Yeah, and his rise has been meteoric uh, when you consider entering the Gold Cup he might have been part of the fold, but not central in the fold. Uh, when you consider, you know, Aaron Long was trusted by Greg Berhalter for so long. John Brooks, it felt like, had, you know, the very obvious route to being a first team's uh, first choice center back. And when you look at like, the combination of both him and Walker Zimmerman, they were kind of underrated heading into the Gold Cup last summer. And both of them have emerged as kind of the first choice. U.S. center backs, and I kind of would feel weird not going into the World Cup with those guys because they've been so rock solid in big moments for the U.S. So I, I do think that he his loss would be massive, and I agree with you on the turf thing. Like, you know, it's one of the things that for the teams that don't play on it, you always hear the coaches talking about, oh, we got to go play on turf, and maybe, you know, you don't want to risk injuries on turf and I just don't feel like that should be part of the equation. That's actually been, I've been part of the, uh, the conversation in the NFL as well with some of the teams that play on turf. Some of the guys uh, in that league don't like it either. But, you know, obviously, if you're playing in an indoor venue, it's not possible. Seattle can fix it. Portland can fix it. Um, but, you know, they choose not to because of the nature of growing grass there. But either way, uh, you, you don't want to see the playing surface either, for me, diluting the quality of play, which I think we've kind of, that conversation has gone to the background just because it's been around for so long. But I think that that should definitely uh, feature in our conversations about turf, uh, but also the injuries as well. Although I have to be honest, when you said that you were going to transition into USMNT-related subject, I thought you were going to talk about Mark Pulisic's tweet about Christian <laughs> Pulisic's playing time. Uh, we have not covered that on the podcast. That certainly got a lot of play in the English press. What was he actually saying, though? Was he like it was a little cryptic because yeah. he talked about big six months ahead? Well, six months from now is, I guess, the World Cup. Yeah, but also made me wonder, like, is he talking about a move potentially for Pulisic in the summer? Um, 
hard to know. And he deleted the tweet. I, yeah. I like Mark Polisic, by the way. I, I met him first time I interviewed Christian. Uh, they were still living together in Dortmund. And, and he's a good dude. One mm -hmm. of those guys who like drove me to uh, the train station after the interview, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so I, I do know that my sense is this. I, I, I think Mark and Christian maybe put a little too much stock into what people say on Twitter even yo-yos and and you just can't do that you know especially if you're a professional athlete or anybody really just like and i yeah it's clearly a frustration over in that end about how chelsea has used christian polisic this this season but when you put out a tweet like that I understand the frustration, but it's it's not adding to things. It's it's making things worse. Agreed. And I, I think, you know, family members getting involved. And look, I completely understand it because, you know, I'm sure, although, you know, like, my, like my parents read stuff that they see on social media about the Levitard show, like my Twitter, like they know my Twitter replies better than I do. <laughs> and so, like, that's kind of weird. It's weird to live your life kind of constantly being scrutinized, but... I try and like say it doesn't like it doesn't matter, but I also can completely understand when you know you're Christian Pulisic or when you're any or, you're, or if you're anyone under the age of 25, all these social media platforms have been around your whole life, and so you kind of do live in some respects in the world of your social media, and you can't log on to Instagram, which a lot of guys do, or log on to Twitter, or log on if you're Christian probably into your TikTok account without seeing some people shit posting him. And, and trying to get a rise out of them and, and say things. And it's kind of hard to not internalize that and to not feel like if your coach just gave you a chance, and it's even it takes even more restraint to not then vocalize it, but you just can't. It's unfortunately one of the things about being a professional sports person is that, I mean, imagine if every player's parents or family said things when their when they're, you know, kind of relative didn't play, it would kind of be a bit chaotic. So uh, I completely understand Christian's devotion to Chelsea and devotion to progressing his career. But I mean, I, I don't know if your dad tweeting about it is really the best way to engender sympathy, I would suppose. Yeah. One other thing I want to get at is the NWSL Challenge Cup Finals this weekend, North Carolina 2, Washington 1. A trophy was given out. And yet the dominant discussion after this game was not about the soccer. It was about the NWSL not protecting its players again. In this case, you had, you had a game descend into a really chippy game in, in the second half. Uh, a lot of wild tackles. Referee totally lost control of the game. And then you had a situation where Washington players were literally running over to get a stretcher for Jordan Baggett, who had gone down with a, a scary, scary injury. And the, the, the stretcher person was just like walking. And players should never have to do stuff like this. And yet they did. And the whole Challenge Cup has been a bit of a disaster for the NWSL. And the scheduling has been weird. Um you know, the regular season started, but then they had the Challenge Cup final and, you know, poor refereeing, uh, too many games in too short a time, lots of injuries coming out of these games. And it makes you feel like I know they got a sponsor 
for this tournament and, and they plan to do it in the future, but I kind of don't know if they should. I agree. I think it was a great idea during the pandemic. It was one of the first sports leagues that got back to action right. in a safe environment. And it was incredibly important for the league. It was incredibly important for the players. There was a huge stage to, you know, stage some social protest as well. But it was a relic of the pandemic. There wasn't a second MLS's back tournament. Uh, there was not right. a second trip from the NBA to the Disney bubble because that worked so well. And, you know, it was talked about at the time, well, maybe these are ideas we can use in the future, but they're not. Ultimately, you have a league season, and that's that. If you want to add games to your league season, could be useful. I certainly think that the Challenge Cup presented games with some stakes, you know, kind of on the flip side of, you know, maybe the game getting away from the referee is that, the players are really into it, and it was an intense game of football, but I, I, I don't necessarily uh, think that this thing should exist anymore. I understand it's an opportunity for sponsorship, but maybe that sponsor can just sponsor more of the regular season, and that way you can extend it further, and you have more games and more home dates to give to everybody. But I think this is probably a relic of the pandemic that probably should have stayed with the pandemic. Agreed. And then I do want to mention Alex Morgan, by the way, four goals for San Diego, and it's win uh on the weekend and i think that's a, a growing sort of trend to follow as a potential storyline is veteran u.s women's national team players feeling real pressure now if they want to play for the national team have to do it have to perform for their nwsl teams and you know alex morgan speaking you know, communicating in much better ways than, than talking by scoring four goals and, and and really saying, like, look, I want to be back on the national team. And so I, I, I think it'll be interesting to see players like her, Kristen Press, Megan Rapino, Tobin Heath, wherever she ends up, whenever she gets healthy. Um, you know, there's a, a, a World Cup next year, qualifying tournaments this summer. They want to be involved, and there's no guarantee. And I think no guarantee is a good thing. I agree. And it's interesting because, one, I think I'm glad that Vlatko Andonovsky cares more about club form than previous managers have because I think it leads to a better version of the club game, particularly in this country. I think at times some players viewed the, the, the regular season as a chance to, you know, like use it as a ramp-up opportunity more than I need to press and really, you know, score as many goals as I can and do as much as I can. Not to say that they were sagging at all, but just, you know, not necessarily going full pelt like they could. And then the other thing, uh, too, is you have now th this level of competition, and in some ways it kind of reminds me of Germany in, that, in the 2018 World Cup where you still have a World Cup winning team, and it was pretty clear that Yogi Love wanted to change the look of it, bring some new players in, because you kind of recognize you can get stale if you just bring back the same team. We've seen teams go out in the group stage, so you try and bring some new players through, but in the end, he went back to some of those old players, and after he initially went to Bayern Munich and said, Muller, you're out. Uh, Jerome Boateng, you're out. Uh, you know, to some other you know key guys saying, you're out, but then eventually brought them back in, and it was kind of a disaster anyway. I'd kind of be curious if the old guard is still performing really well at club level come the World Cup or come qualifying, if those are the players that come back in, even though it seems pretty clear after the Olympic performance that regime change was going to come. Uh, you know, Maybe those players are not ready to, to give that up yet and are still ready to come back and be the key figures in the national team that they've been for a decade. Good stuff, as always, Chris. Many thanks. Thanks, Grant.
Now, here's my interview with Brent Maximin. Our guest now is a good friend of mine here in New York City. Brent Maximin is a developmental psychologist and professor at Brooklyn College. He's also part of the group I watch Champions League games with, usually at Smithfield Hall. He also used to write about soccer at SB Nation, where he was the managing editor at the Busby Babe. And he is a diehard fan of Manchester United, which we'll be talking about today. You can find him on Twitter at Brent Maximin. Brent, it is great to see you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, good good to see you. Um, Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, I'm fired up for this. Um, yeah. We should have done it a long time ago, actually. But uh, it's funny, I've never actually asked you this question. How did you first become a Manchester United fan? Yeah, so... Um... I guess the, the the romantic part of that would be to say that uh, I fell in love with Eric Cantona. Um, like, you know, everybody else in my generation probably who's a Manchester United fan. Um, but the other part of that answer is that in my formative years, Manchester United were very, very good at football. <laughs> um, and as a kid, at, at the team that's winning all the time and is, you know, playing in fun games, um, that's the most appealing um, and then Dwight York signed from from Aston Villa in um, in 1998, and that was the end of that for me. You know, I was never going to support anybody else. And I mean, the Trinidad connection, right? So, right, yeah, yeah. yes, uh, yeah, yeah. And are you were you born in Trinidad? I should know this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Born and raised in, in Trinidad. To be uh, I have a funny Dwight York story. I'll tell you someday. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I can tell it to you right now. It was right yeah. before the 98 World Cup and the U.S. men's team, before they went and embarrassed themselves, had <laughs> a big like send-off party here in New York City. I think it was like the old All-Star Cafe in um, Times Square. Yeah. And Dwight York was trying to get in and they weren't letting him in. And it was one of those only in America things. Yeah where like he didn't get recognized and they weren't, they were literally not letting him in. So finally someone who actually knew soccer got Dwight York in, but it was <laughs> absurd and awful. <laughs> I could have, somehow I could have guessed that this Dwight York story was going to involve a, a party of some kind. <laughs> <laughs> that too, that too. Um, and, so it's good to get that perspective on on how long you have been a Manchester United yeah. fan going back to the 90s. Present day, things not going so well. Uh, we're coming off United's 4-0 loss to Brighton over the weekend. One more league game left in this miserable season. What on earth happened to this once great club? Man, uh, I think uh, United have been mismanaged for a long time. Uh, the Glazers have been, have been bad stewards. Uh, of the club and the the chickens didn't come home to roost until united couldn't uh, you know no longer had the the ultimate uh paper over crack solution inside alex ferguson um because for you know for the several years um eight years that uh, Sir alex was there under glazer ownership there was a lot of underinvestment um, the structure of the club got 
left behind in terms of youth recruitment, you know, in terms of the backroom staff, just in, in terms of the football structure. Uh, but, you know, the, you can afford to do those things and still be successful when you have uh, a, a truly unique figure in, in football history. Um, and once he was gone, you know, the, the, that structure was no longer in place. And um, then you end up with people running the club who had no idea how to modernize a football club. And that's how you get, okay, David Moyes, who was, you know, a bad fit, not properly backed, got a couple of players, then he's gone. Then a manager with a totally different philosophy comes in, is sort of backed, but he gets players for his system. He doesn't work, get him out. (laughs) A manager with another totally different philosophy comes in. Both of these who are past their best get players. Some of the players that he wants, he's not fully backed either. So you get this squad now that's basically signed badly by committee um, and and that is not fit for for purpose. Um, And yeah, I think it's just, just years of, of, mismanagement and uh, no clear, no clear vision um, to a, a no clear commitment to a long-term project. And that's how we end up here at uh, a fresh, fresh rock bottom. Is this the low point after four nil on the weekend? You know what? You would think so. Um, but I think the Liverpool and City results early this season were probably my low point as a supporter. And, and at the point where there was very little that could have been salvaged from from this season um uh, you know obviously it's terrible you know watching your this is the most successful team in, in the history of england and there are a bunch of um talented players supposedly <laughs> um the the so-called biggest sporting institution on earth and brighton who have nothing to play for, by the way. They're not fighting relegation. They're not qualifying for Europe. They're just out there having fun and ripped us to pieces. Um, this is the kind of game at the end of the season. You're like, oh, this is, we should be able to run up the score in this because Brighton's players are already on holiday, right? They're not, they've gotten their survival bonuses. They're not getting into Europe. The only thing they're playing for is just to finish up the season comfortably mid table. And a 4 nil might have flattered us. <laughs> so terrible. Um, but the Liverpool and City defeats mid-season, I think my low point as just as a supporter, you know, never mind, never mind this season. So at this point, you know, I can't be, I can't be hurt anymore. Uh, do you watch every minute of every game or do you get fed up sometimes and just say, I'm not doing it? Unfortunately, unfortunately, yes. You know, I'm uh I don't know if it's Stockholm syndrome, you know, but I am, I'm trapped in the, every, every weekend I say, I'm not waking up to watch this. I'm not, I'm not doing it. You know, I've, I should go outside, you know, I'd, let me <laughs> call my loved ones. Uh, let me read, uh, fold some laundry. So many things I could be doing. And I still, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe I watched that yesterday, you know, I was tired. I was out the night before. I woke up early that morning to do some some on stay stuff. I was doing. I had every right to just take a nap, you know, before before we had dinner last night. Um, and instead, uh, you know, I watched this embarrassing, embarrassing performance. I, I don't mean to laugh. I'm sorry. I mean, you, look, you have to you have to laugh, right? You know. Um, um, <laughs> the thing I say now is, you know, 
united rule England and Fergie rule England with an iron fist for 20 years. And all those people whose childhoods and teenage years we ruined, you know, all the Arsenal fans and Liverpool fans and City fans, they're getting it back now um, in blood. Because um, all that hubris after all those years, we're, we're paying for it right now. Do you think, do the, do the Glazers understand how big the problem is or that they're the problem or part of the problem? I don't think so. And uh, I don't think they care. Um, the club is still wildly profitable, um, even with the amount of debt that they placed on, you know, on the club. Um, and if the rumors are to be believed about what kind of price they would ask for, they would, they, they have, I don't think they have any intention of selling right now. And if they did, it would be for, um, you know, something. What, what is Chelsea supposed to be going for this week? I think it was a uh, good question. I, I thought two, it was 2.5. Two, two point five. Right. Apparently the, the Glazers wouldn't even, you know, turn their heads for less than 4 billion. So, uh, and maybe not, that is not even realistic. So uh, I think, I think they were comfortable being just successful enough for a while. And now they're probably realizing that the, the rut has set in a little bit too much and it needs to be, they need to actually achieve some success here um, before the brand is too far gone. Um, Cause I think that is something they do care about is, is the brand of Manchester United. Um, and I, as far as whether they know they're the problem, I don't think so, because you wouldn't have had the last uh, several years of, okay, it's the manager fault, so get the manager out. Um, you back him in the first window, the second window, you tell him, no, make do with what you have. And then, of course, he fails, then you sack him, new manager comes in, back him in the first window. Uh, he does okay. Second window comes around. You don't back him. You tell him make do with what he has. Fails, and then you repeat. So, yeah. Hopefully, by now they realize that the way they've been around the club and the people they've empowered have been the problem. Uh, and I, I think that's why you see in this kind of root and branch upheaval happening this summer. What's your sense of of Ralph Rangnick and? <laughs> his whole thing with this club and some of the stuff he said publicly recently. And I mean, obviously he's not going to be the manager next season. Eric Ten Hag is, is it still unclear also too, if Rangnick's going to continue as a consultant? No, it's clear that he's going to be a consultant. It's not okay. clear exactly how much influence he will have um, because, you know, clubs have consultants all the time that you just, you don't know the name of, uh, I think the the thing that's been reported in the media is that he'll be working uh, six days a month or something like that. Mm. Um, which now that he's going to be the, the manager of the, the Austrian men's national team, that probably means a Zoom call once a week. <laughs> Microsoft Teams. Um, I like Ralph Ragnick because he has clear ideas, and he and he he. If it's one thing he's provided, because he clearly hasn't provided results on on the, on the pitch, he's provided a, a really sober and sobering assessment of where this squad is. Um, and that's hard to hear, but he was almost perfect that, one, because of his personality, and two, because he's not going to be here next year. He's not... It, I never got the sense that he was really um, interviewing for the job. 
I know, you know, early on, of course, he was asked a question. He said, yeah, it's possible. But I don't think I don't think most people ever had that sense that there was a chance he would continue permanently. So I think him being a lame duck, you know, being on a short term contract and also having a longer term purview, you know, with his his consulting uh, deal that's going to start at the end of the season. Um, I don't think he was as invested in getting results this season at all costs. And um, also, I think, not really invested in, uh, in you know, being the guy to take a lot of arrows um, from the media, you know, because he's gone there and said, look, hey, this team isn't that good. I wanted a strike in January. They told me no. And now we're not scoring goals. <laughs> so um, as a manager, um, he's been all right. You know, he's been a, he's been a disappointment, I, I would say. Um, I don't think it's been any worse than Solskjaer might have been because, um, it, you know, you look back at the end of Solskjaer's tenure, it was just terrible. Um, but I think it's also been maybe needed, I think. You know, there's no overperformance and the players that maybe kept Solskjaer in a job because they were because Solskjaer's thing was just giving players individual responsibility. So Harry Maguire, Luke Shaw, Bruno Fernandes, Marcus Rashford, the, the best stretches in the Solskjaer era, probably those four players especially, who thrive in that kind of somewhat controlled chaos, um, did really well. Because, you know, Bruno and Marcus Rashford, when they were informed of players who could just make something happen, right? Harry Maguire taken a lot of, of criticism this season, rightfully, because he's been bad. Um, but last season and through the Euros, incredible, incredible form. And um, he was operating with a joke of a midfield in front of him, right? He had to step into midfield a lot to move the ball, loop show, right? Getting up and down uh, the left wing. Um, again, it's not like a clearly defined system. These are just players who will, you know, they shine in that kind of, scenario and for one reason or another um all of those players have either been unavailable or crap or both so there's nowhere left to hide um this season and yeah i think that's probably been needed because even if we had you know snuck in fourth which we could have if we were even remotely a serious team we could have cover gotten fourth because spurs and arsenal are not anything special um, but we're not a serious team. So I think that lays it bare that this squad is not good. <laughs> we need a hard reset. So you're expecting massive changes. So, yeah. I mean, how how extensive, I guess, would be the question? Um, That's a good question. Um, in, in previous year, especially under Ed Woodward, um, results started going south. By now, we would see reports in the media of, of how much they wore chest is you know that's a way to get the fans on side it's like oh new manager is gonna have 150 million pounds to spend we haven't really seen that as much which i think is probably good um but i would expect that at a minimum uh three major signings mm -hmm. um it's gonna take longer than a year to get the team into what ten Hag wants and i think he'll probably have to depend on some players that he doesn't rate um, and he will also have to get the best out of some players who might not be fit for purpose. Um, but, but there's going to be massive change just because of how many players are out of contract and who are 
are most likely going to be moved on. Uh, you know, you have Matic is leaving, uh, one matter, Jesse Lingard, probably Paul Pogba, even though it's not, not certain, Edison Cavani. And then you have Phil Jones, Eric Bailly, probably going to leave. Um, so that's a lot of, that's already an entire bench, right? And, and I give them match this squad that's now probably going to be gone. Um, so you're going to have to replace those. You're going to have some youth players who will become part of the team. And I think there has to be at a minimum three first 11 um, standard players, you know, players who can contribute immediately, even though I'm not expecting, I'm not expecting us to be serious title contenders next season. Um, obviously, I will, I will say that after we win the first preseason game, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, after we beat uh, Sydney in Australia, I'm going to be like, oh, we're, we're winning it all. We're going to win the uh, the working man's treble next season. You know, <laughs> league, FA Cup, and Conference League. Um, it's because I'm shameless, but I'm not expecting us to be to be that good. But I'm definitely expecting that uh, starting eleven next season will look significantly different, and I think in two seasons, very different. You didn't mention Cristiano Ronaldo. Will he be back next season? Do you want him back next season? I didn't want him here in the first place, but he's here. <laughs> you know, I, I think it, for for those of us who who saw from the beginning that this was not a good idea, because he's, you know, he's the only player he used to be. And you ask Juventus fans, yeah, he delivers goals, but it comes at a cost of what the team is able to do. Um, and he, you know, he's had an incredible career. Um, obviously, he was he was great for United the first time around, but he's not, he's not a guy anymore. And he had a good stretch in this calendar year for, you know, the last couple of months, but the way he played yesterday against Brighton or on Saturday against Brighton uh, is the way he played for months, right? Static, not involved, uh, not offering much. So I don't know. I, I think he'll be back because he doesn't have a lot of options. You know, this is probably his last, contract at a major European club. Uh, maybe after he's out of contract a year from now, if he has something left in the tank, maybe I don't know. PSG makes a you know a flashy signing. Maybe he wants to play a year in, you know, back in Portugal. But I, I don't think he has options. I, I think all the talk of him deciding his future is a lot of bluffing. Where else is he, is he going to go? You know, like, I, I thought maybe at some point you would start your Twitter campaign to bring him to Inter-Miami, but I don't know if he actually <laughs> still wants or can get into the United States, which is a separate conversation. <laughs> yeah, um, which is the real reason why I didn't want United to sign him in the first place. You know, it's just, I think that's added to the, the, the just overall bad vibes of this season. is just seeing people cheer for this guy who's been credibly accused of assault and um, and now we're supposed to, to cheer him on as if nothing has happened or if it doesn't matter what footballers do, um, which is just not true. You know, it's not like any other job, right? Your job is predicated on, on public support. And uh, yeah, if Inter Miami wants him, you know, let him and his lawyers sort it out. I'll pack his bags myself. And Eric Ten Hag, I, I got to admit, I haven't, watched a ton of Ajax, some in Champions League, 
Uh, obviously, they made a great run a couple years ago. Made a good run this year. I think I watched one of the rivalry games in the Dutch league this year. And, and look, they, they played good soccer under him and, and done things that Ajax hadn't done for a while. Um, what's your sense of the hire and of him? I like it. Um, I think he was of the available options. <clears throat> Maybe Luis Enrique he would have been my first, first choice. Um, but he was never going to be available you know, with, with the, this World Cup, him not being able to join until after the World Cup. So um, I'm excited about Ten Hag. Um, obviously, he's, he's talked about as, as you know, the, the best young manager in, in Europe, and he's the same age as, as Mauricio Pochettino. <laughs> um, so it, he's not exactly, uh, you know, he's not 29. Um, but I like... Not just the, because he's not, I think it's a mistake to think of him as an Ajax purist. You know, one of the things I was uh, defining about his time at Ajax is the fact that he was not really beholden to that. You know, Ajax had struggled for a couple of years and he came in and, and realized, hey, this is how, with the squad we have, we're going to play in a more pragmatic style to get the best out of, of what we have. And this team was, you know, I haven't watched him a lot but you know, I've just watched it enough over the years, and you could see this style has sort of evolved. And um, I think that's promising um, because it means he's adaptable. Um, and I think you have to be in the environment that Manchester United is right now. I'm sure he's been promised a lot. Uh, I would be surprised if he gets everything that he's been promised because no manager who's been here since Alex has, in according to them, have gotten the things that they expected. So, you know, the fact that he's, um, he is flexible, the fact that he's a little bit of a, a, a bastard by all accounts. And I think we need, I think we need a bastard, um, somebody who will, who will push back um, in both directions, you know, um, who will be, um, who will challenge the players and also challenge his bosses, I think is necessary because, yeah, you United has kind of been a a mess top to bottom. Um so yeah, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. <laughs> is Paul Pogba gonna go to a different club and play more like he has for France and Juventus like immediately? Probably. <laughs> yeah, that would that would be my expectation. Um because of the clubs that he's the clubs he's linked to, whether it's Real Madrid, whether it's back at Juventus, um, whether it's PSG, um, he, he'll probably immediately be in a better situation on and off the pitch. Um, I don't think we will... I think one of the things with, with uh, Franz Pogba is that his style... like you, get, you just get more time on the ball in international football. And especially for the type of player he is, he will always shine more in international football. Also, France is one of the best teams in the world, right? Every position is filled by a world-class or near world-class player. Um, and at Juventus for France, uh, you know, he has a consistent, had and has a consistent position, you know, clear responsibilities. That's never been the case at United. That hasn't been even been the case at United in, in the last three matches when he was before he got injured, you know, he played in different 
different positions and in different systems. And not to make excuses for him because he, you know, he's been a disappointment in in his own right. Um, but I would expect, even though I think maybe injuries recently have taken may have taken something away from him. Yeah, I would expect he would for his wherever he turns up next, he would look immediately better. And do you see this if Man United under Eric Ten Hag gets better again? How long a process do you see that taking? At what point do you think, even if things go well, how many years would it take to be in a position to win the Premier League and win Champions League? I mean, if we look at um, if we look at a club at Liverpool, um, because Liverpool had a, a series of, you know, okay, uh, you had Kenny Daglish and, and Roy Hudson who were not the right hires. And you had Brendan Rodgers, who I, I mean, I think Brendan, I think Brendan Rodgers is a fraud, but you know, he, his team, his team got close, um, and then they got Klopp in, and that squad was bloated and imbalanced too, and not fit for what the kind of football Klopp wanted to play. But it, it didn't take him that long, you know. It took him a couple of seasons. So I think if you're if you're supported, if you have the right structure in place, a club of united size, and Ragnick has said this as well. It should take, you know, two years. Um, so, you know, if in if in two seasons we're at the same place or further away, <laughs> I'd be worried. But I'd, I, um, it, it could even be faster, you know, because this is the way of the world, right? The, you can, when you're rich, you can always buy your way out of trouble. And United are supposed to be rich. Um, they've just had more money than sense for a long time. So if they spend that money smartly, um hey, we could be up there in two seasons. I've never known you when Manchester United was good. So, like, <laughs> are, are you, like, an insufferable fan with, like, when they're, like, doing really well or not? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm, in, I'm insufferable. Um, I'm not joking. We win, if we win two preseason games on the trot, I'm going to be unbearable. <laughs> I'm gonna start looking at, at trophy parade tickets, you know. I'm like, all right, me, I think it's me. All right, I should start, you know, looking at accommodations now. Uh so I could be there. You know, when is the I'm gonna start looking at the, the 2024 Champions League final venue and <laughs> try to get a jump start? Um but I think you know it's it's uh I think there's different levels of being uh insufferable. Um, I've, there are certain fan bases or certain fans online that, uh, you know, any sight of any, any hint of adversity, you know, starts pointing fingers and ref conspiracy and, oh, if it was this team, it wouldn't be this. It only happens to us. United have been good for most of my life, you know, up until the last few years. So that has made it easier to have a little humor about, about us being bad. Oh, but the second we're good again. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> Fred Maximin. <laughs> Fred Maximin is a developmental psychologist and professor at Brooklyn College. He's also part of the group I watched Champions League games with at Smithfield Hall. Used to write about soccer at SB Nation, where he was the managing editor of the Busby Babe. You can find him on Twitter at Brent Maximin. Brent, thank you for coming on the show. Grant, thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. 
Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Brent Maximin, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.